BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, Senator Elizabeth Warren sits down with me to talk about her plan for the economy. The progressive agenda is America's agenda. On economics. On economics. Then, Ross, Michelle, and I debate. Is Warren's agenda the future of the Democratic Party? This is when I start wondering, like, how much policy actually matters at all. And finally, a recommendation. I bought the Perrier fruit-flavored seltzer, and it's awful. Senator Elizabeth Warren has been setting the terms of the conversation about policy in the 2020 presidential campaign. She's come out with a series of ideas that are big, bold, and some would say radical. An annual tax on the holdings of the very wealthy. Universal child care. A breakup of big tech companies. A requirement that corporate boards include workers. Whether or not Warren wins the nomination, she's influencing the future of the Democratic Party. So we wanted to sit down with her and give a proper hearing to her ideas. She invited me and our producer, Alex Laughlin, to her apartment in Washington, D.C., where we recorded this conversation, fittingly enough, at her kitchen table. Senator Warren, welcome to The Argument. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So you know a lot of the people who are also running for president? Some of them are your friends? I do. So why you? This is my life's work. And... Look, I think 2020 will be about economics. What's happened to working families, what's happening to middle class families, why is it that the path has gotten so much steeper, so much rockier for hardworking people and even steeper and even rockier for people of color? This is a moment when we can tackle that one head on, when we can run straight up the middle and say, we're going to make a change here. So you've been alive for previous presidential campaigns. Uh You know how Republicans will paint a Democratic nominee, and you in particular, if you're the nominee, right? If we were going to make a Democratic nominee in a lab, right, Mm -hmm. it probably wouldn't be a former Harvard professor. So how do you fight back when they say there's this Massachusetts liberal? I'm going to push back on just the whole notion of of how this should work. Look, I was born and raised in Oklahoma. I'm the baby. I have three older brothers. Significantly older. Yes, significantly older brothers. They all three joined the military. That was their chance to make it into the middle class. My daddy ended up as a janitor. My big chance in life was a commuter college that cost $50 a semester. And ultimately, I got to be a public school teacher, worked with special needs kids. And you were let go in part because you were pregnant. I know, got pushed out the door. (laughs) Uh, But that turned me around to law school, a public law school that cost $450 a semester. The way I see it is I have lived opportunity. I don't just, in the abstract, think opportunity is great. I've lived it. 
And I've lived the kind of opportunity that comes from a government that invests a little in its kids, a government that tries to keep the playing field a little bit level for folks like my family. I believe that is the America of our best values. So your campaign is a direct extension of your life's work. It's yes. this idea that our country, our society doesn't work for most people anymore and that you want to fix that. And so I thought we should talk a little bit about what caused the problem and then how you want to fix it. And I actually want to start with a historical anecdote that involves another presidential candidate, and maybe not the one you would expect, George Romney, Mitt's dad, Uh who before he ran for president in 1968 was an auto executive. And he had a habit of saying no to annual bonuses that his board wanted to give him. Because he said to his he said to his board of directors, "I do not believe anyone should make more than two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year, which adjusted for inflation is about two million dollars. I mean, can you imagine that today? And I think that that highlights how our culture and our society used to be different, that top corporate executives didn't try to maximize their own pay. They viewed themselves as kind of leaders of society, and sure, they fought for things that helped their profits, but they also built the interstate highway system. And I guess I just wonder if you could look back and offer some thoughts about what was it that created that old culture that seemed to work so well for our country? So I'd say the roots were in the Great Depression and the notion that we had lived through a period of extraordinary inequality, right? The very, very wealthy uh, and Uh, Then it had all come crashing down around Mm -hmm. our ears in the Great Depression. And those who had been at the top were really kind of fingered as the guys who caused the crash and brought it down on everyone. So the idea was we're in this together. Now, you always have to take a deep breath on this and say together is a relative term. Yep together among white people and together among men. But still, you can actually see it in the data, can't you? That as the country got richer, as GDP goes up, income goes up for everybody. You can read things about how when the company does well, how excited all the workers are. Mm -hmm. Because that means this year, their raises are going to be a little bit bigger. In other words, the sense of shared enterprise is not only the the CEO who says I'm I'm part of leading this team and we're going to do this together and and living it not just the rhetoric but also at the other end all the workers being proud of what they put out because they know when the company does well they will do well can you see any way to recapture that old ethos today so it, it How did the companies at that point describe themselves and how did the law align with it? Because it wasn't just a cultural thing. It was actually reinforced by by legal incentives, by rules. They They all worked together. Let me give you a couple of examples. So you look back at the business roundtable. You know, these are the ginormous businesses that all get together and the CEOs get together and talk about how business is. And I think uh, formally only CEOs can be that's members right. I think of the that's business right. I think that's right. And only ginormous companies right. can be can be members. So they get together for the business roundtable and 
how do they describe themselves into the early 1980s? Now, this is formally described themselves, not just over, you know, cigars and fine port, but how do they actually describe themselves? In their documents. Yeah, in their documents. And they say a corporation owes a duty to its shareholders, to its workers, to its customers, to the community in which it is located, that all of those entities are stakeholders in this company. By the end of the 1980s, you see the business roundtable describe the obligation of these ginormous corporations as we have an obligation to our shareholders and nobody else. Full stop. Full stop. Our job is to pump out the greatest number of dollars of profits to increase the wealth of our shareholders. And if that means mashing our workers into the dirt, not our problem. Yep. So so powerful difference. And then you're watching the law, the incentives in the law shift at the same time. So Roosevelt comes in and first Roosevelt, going to be a trust buster that works for a while, then it kind of dies off, and then we see the Gilded Age. Second Roosevelt comes in, Franklin Roosevelt, and he says, I'm going to pick up these antitrust tools, and I'm going to use them. So throughout the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, into the 70s, you see really strong antitrust enforcement. In other words, you get too big, and there's a there's a government that balances you out and says, whoa, no more swallowing up your rivals, no more eating the little businesses so that they don't pose any threat to you. And you watch that all the way through in the government, the places where the government supports the idea that corporations are not just there to maximize their profits. We got to make sure that competition is protected, uh, that the SEC is strong and is is a cop walking the beat to make sure that giant companies are not cheating either their investors or their customers. That's the idea. And you can sort of see how the government and companies reinforce each other. Yes. That if companies feel like, hey, there's a cop on the beat, we better behave. And if they feel like, you know what, they're not going to stop us, it, it, it sort of gives them incentive and permission to be much more aggressive about everything. You are so right to focus on the incentive. In fact, I'll just add to it. It actually starts to work the other way. So if there's a cop on the beat, I better mind my P's and Q's, but I know my competitors will be too. Oh, that's interesting. If there's no cop on the beat, holy, right. yeah, wait, I know I'm a good guy, but man, that corporation or corporations I'm competing against, they're not. And if no one's going to enforce it and they're going to cheat, boy, I better get out there and start cutting corners too. So so the role of government, it's not just either good or benign. It's actually good or bad in terms of how it these incentives get adjusted. One of the themes that we talk about on our show is the American people are quite progressive on economics, right? You look at the polling on your wealth tax. You look at the polling on other tax increases on the rich, tax increases on corporations, minimum wage, expanding Medicare, down the line. The progressive agenda is America's agenda. On economics. On economics. I think it's different on social issues and cultural issues where I think we are more fundamentally divided. I think there are even some issues where you could say we are a center-right country, but we are much more of a center country than a left-leaning country. And I think that 
there are a lot of people out there who, even though they may support a wealth tax or expanded Medicare, continue to vote Republican or don't vote because of some of these other issues. And it's interesting. You're a former registered Republican earlier in your life, right? Can you talk about how you make the case to people who are with you on economics, but who, for deeply held reasons, they may be pro-life, they may want immigration restrictions, they may, and they're not going to agree with you on those issues. How do you win those people over? So I'm going to make the pitch slightly differently. And that is, I think a lot of people don't believe you actually will make any change on economics, that most politicians will stand up and talk about, oh, I'm, I'm here for working people. And then they're not. And then they don't make any real change. I think that Right now, people are told over and over and over there's not a nickel's worth of difference between the folks in Washington. Yep. Democrat, Republican. In fact, the only differences are on social issues because none of them are doing anything to help anyone except giant drug companies, giant financial companies, giant oil companies, right? That helped Trump win. That That's right. And so it's not as if people have been asked to weigh real economic change versus social issues on which we, as just as a country, we just, we disagree. Instead, it's been a Washington that doesn't work for them. And that's what they see. So I, the way I see this is coming really hard at this fundamental question of what's broken, why it is that Washington doesn't work in a democracy for the majority of the people. And that we can see where the economic problems are, we can truly make a commitment that's credible, that we're going to fight it and fight it together and make these changes. You know, here's the example. So start with the wealth tax. And people get interested. And they say, wow, you really would be willing to push back on the billionaires, on the multi, multi, multi multi-millionaires, on people who've amassed these great fortunes? And the answer to that is, yeah, I would. But here's part two. If we did that, let's talk about what kind of difference that could make in your life. Because the wealth tax would produce enough money to pay for universal child care and early education, pre-K and pre-pre-K, and still have $2 trillion left over. Think about what we could do on student loans or the work we need to do on infrastructure. And, you know, it all starts to feel real now. Something something that's not just hand-waving and pie in the sky, but feels like real change. An outside budget expert said to me, you know, I can't decide how I feel about the war on wealth tax, but I'll tell you this. She never has to answer the question again during the campaign of how will you pay for something. Yes, the answer right is there. the wealth tax. You start with how you're going to pay for it, but that's that's actually the heart of the point. So there's there are a whole bunch of silly criticisms of a couple of your policy proposals. Oh, well, let's do the silly ones. Well, (laughs) let's skip the silly ones. Let's do the, uh, let me tell you the ones that weigh on me a little bit, right? Which is in the literal sense of the word radical, meaning to get at the root of the problem, you have some radical proposals, right? They're new, they're innovative. So one is the wealth tax. We Uh do not currently have a tax on large wealth. We have a property tax, which is sort of a tax. I was just going to say, actually, I'd like to point out that every homeowner in America, every owner of a small family farm, they are paying a wealth tax. It's just called a property tax and they pay usually a lot 
more. Which is, I think, probably the best argument for it. You also have this proposal to put workers on corporate boards yes. with the with, to the idea of reinstilling the notion that companies exist for shareholders, yes, but also for workers and communities. So mm-hmm. it seems to me that the more substantive criticisms of this is that you are asking government to do a lot of new things. Given the amount of distrust that people have in government, what gives you the confidence that government can actually take on all these new roles and do these things that it hasn't been doing? I built one. Built? The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That went from zero to 60, right? We didn't have a consumer agency. Within a year, it was actually out there stopping the frauds, forcing the big banks to pay people back, managing a consumer complaint hotline. We made it work. And I'll tell you about setting that up because this is like, this was amazing. I Building that agency was an amazing experience, but the probably the best part of it was the fact that people from all over the country showed up and said, let me be part of this. I want to do something, something bigger than myself, something more important than what I've been doing. And people, people applied who'd been in the banking industry. People applied who were straight out of college. People applied who had just retired. Oh, I had a cowboy who applied. It's true. It's a true story. He was a, he described himself as a cowboy banker. But, <laughs> but, but people applied. People applied who'd been prosecutors and had prosecuted other kinds of criminal behavior and wanted a chance to go after those who cheat people for their money. And then the, the challenge was to build an agency that had a structure so the mission really would carry out over time. Not just while I was there and able to walk up and down the halls and say, who are we fighting for? Families across this country, but that would truly be built into the structure. And so proof is in the pudding. That little agency has forced the biggest financial institutions in this country to return about $12 billion directly to people they cheated. Now, take a deep breath there. If they actually had to write checks for $12 billion, how much other cheating didn't go on because right. they said, this is just the cop not on the worth beat idea. The cop on the beat. I think a lot of people have the impression that Trump has just totally neutered it. But you think this agency is still doing good today? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Not, look, not as much as it could be doing. Mick Mulvaney did everything he could to take the legs out from underneath it. But the agency may have paused in some of its more aggressive work, but the structure is right. It's still there. And yeah. it's still handling those complaints. It's still making a difference in the marketplace. And it feels, I mean, it seems to me the, the bigger point there in terms of looking forward is you actually think sometimes bigger ideas are more possible to accomplish. Oh, I do. Because you can inspire people. Um, one of the ways that we know the campaign playbook, particularly for President Trump, will go, it'll involve racism. You've obviously experienced this more than most people because of the racist insults that he used. After the whole controversy about the Native American history, you said that you're open to the idea of, of, of reparations, not only for African Americans from slavery, but reparations for Native Americans. How do you make that case in particular to white workers that the Democrats are the party of white people too? So I'm, I'll make the argument two ways. One is I think we just have to address it and talk about it head on. We cannot pretend 
there is no racial implication to anything that happens. We live in an America where for every $100 of wealth that the middle white family owns, the median black family owns about $5 of wealth. Generation after generation of systematic discrimination, for example, on housing, which was still legal into the 1960s, a federal government that subsidized the purchase of homes in all the neighborhoods except African-American neighborhoods, has had implications that reverberate through today. And we just got to be willing to address it and talk about it head on. There's no sweeping it under the rug. There's no pretending it's not there. So I think that's part one. We just talk about it. Part two is, look, Donald Trump gets the basic idea, and that is let's set working people against working people. Yep. Let's, Let's treat value in our country, wealth in our country, is absolutely limited. And if a dollar to him, it's not a dollar to you, working person against working person. Martin Luther King Jr. called this out back in the 1960s. He talked about setting working people against working people so nobody would notice that it was the really rich people who were picking their pockets. So I think part of it is we just have to say, is that who we're going to be? Are we going to turn on each other or are we going to try to work this out? Let me actually ask you a quick question about universal child care. It was a subject of a recent episode of The Argument. And there's a lot that I really like about the universal child care program. I like the idea that it builds up a system of better preschools. I like the idea that you're going to raise the wages of of child care workers. I have one concern. Yeah, <laughs> I have one concern. And it's it's not the majority of the program, but it's a real concern. There are working class and middle class people who want to stay home with their mm-hmm. kids. It, your Good. mom did that, yep. right? Yep. And this program doesn't help them. Oh, wrong. Tell me oh, how I'm wrong. Oh, so wrong. So this program puts all this money into early learning programs. So understand, rich people... Whether they're home or not, they've got their kids in top-notch programs when they're four years old, when they're three years old, a lot of them when they're still two years old, because they know that those educational opportunities, and they are educational opportunities. I mean, it looks like to you and me, they're playing with blocks and they're bumping into each other and knocking each other down, but these these are important educational opportunities. Those are open to everybody. Have at it. You don't have to go in pocket to make sure that your children get the same opportunities as the children of somebody who's rich. Could you imagine adding some kind of tax credit that says if your income is below a certain level and you stay home with your kid for the first year or two that you get a boost as well? So I think it's an interesting idea. I want to see how the numbers play out, of course, and exactly who'd be affected. But but it is true, and this is a this is a core part of it. This is about parents being able to have a range of decisions open to them. Yes. That's really the heart of this. And the fact that all our babies, zero to five, will be well taken care of no matter what. You know, you think about what's going to make a great America a generation from now, two generations from now. Best investment we can make is in those zero to fives. We've the data show us every nickel we invest there pays off 
not only individually for that child throughout their lives, but, but also collectively for all of us. Investments in our kids, those are the investments that really pay off. Yeah, it's, it reduces future yeah. welfare spending, and you probably might create a few more billionaires who then pay some of the wealth tax. Exactly, exactly. And I'm all for that. You know, more people to pay the wealth tax. There well, you go. One more question on it that actually extends to K through 12 and through higher education. One of my differences with a lot of other progressives is that I think progressives haven't been tough enough about the quality of public schools. How do you think the federal government can do a better job of, or disagree with the premise if you want, of getting tough on poor performers and and raising the quality, not just the funding, but the quality of education? So I'm going to do two pitches here. The first one is you can't raise the quality of education if you won't pay your teachers. Yep. You can't raise the quality of education if you do like I did. I went back to my high school and there's ceiling tiles falling down in the school cafeteria. In Oklahoma City. Yeah. Because the roof leaks and nobody has the money to fix it. So partly, you can't stand around and say, do more, do more, do more, and not give them some more money to be able to do it with. But but the second one, I particularly want to focus on higher ed because there's a lot of work here. This is a place where your tax dollars have been put at risk through the student loan program. And yet, right now, the Department of Education is letting for-profit colleges, for example, just siphon those dollars off into, at best, substandard educational experiences for many, many, many students. And the consequence of that is that people get saddled with huge debt and very little increase in their income potential And their lives are destroyed because those debts are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. So right off the top, this fight is right on the table about how much the federal government should insist on higher standards for anyone to be able to get access to the, for any school to be able to get access to the federal student loan program. And understand, for most of these for-profit colleges, They can't operate without federal student loan money. They target principally two groups. Uh, Young people who went straight from high school to the military and now have good benefits as they come out and are ready after maybe having served four years or six years. They want to come out. They want to get a college degree. They pounce on those kids and they pounce on single moms working two jobs on it, read the ads in the subway, um, and and they pitch them on the idea that their children, the children of college graduates, do better than the children of non-college graduates. So people sign up who are not always very sophisticated about the colleges, and they get deep in debt for very substandard educational programs. This is a place where right now. Betsy DeVos, your Secretary of Education, is lowering the standards day by day uh, so that for-profit colleges can rip off more students. Uh, That is outrageous. I agree. And for-profit colleges are clearly worse than public colleges on this. The only thing I'd add is there are public colleges that also have horrifically high dropout rates. Now, I would add to your point, I've actually been pushing for a long time something called skin in the game. 
and that is for all of the colleges, that they should have some skin in the game that the amount of debt their students take out is actually repayable. In other words, the default rate, I just use the default rate as the measure. If you have a whole lot of students who are defaulting, either you're charging too much or you're not helping prepare them for a life where they'll be able to pay this debt back. And the idea that the colleges, once they get their certification, that they are an accredited college. And by the way, that's not done by the government. That's done by these private accrediting agencies you want to pause for a minute, who get their money from the colleges they accredit. Anything might be wrong in that system. Have we ever tried something like that before? Um, But once they get their accreditation, they can set their their prices for their tuition wherever they want. And if it turns out to sink their own students, um, the college pays no penalty for that. So if young people are going to have to borrow money to come to your school, then you should have some um, downside risk if they're leaving your school in great numbers. I get there will yep. always be some, but in in great numbers. And here's here's what I project: there's going to be a, a distribution of schools. Some are going to have high repayment rates, and some are going to have much lower repayment rates. And I think the ones with much lower repayment rates are worth a look at what's going on. And that's the kind of accountability that I was talking about. That's accountability. Very last couple quick things. So we asked our listeners um, what they would want to ask you. Mm -hmm. And one question was about what kind of cabinet you would want to form. And I don't mean individual names, but one of your critiques you've made of the Obama cabinet is you thought it was skewed on sort of one side of the Democratic coalition. Mm -hmm. Would you want a cabinet that mostly reflected your views? Or would you want a cabinet that included a range of views, including some Democrats who are more conservative than you? I would want a cabinet that believes in change. I would want a cabinet that believes that we can make this government and this economy work, not just for the rich and the powerful, but for everyone else. I am not interested in having a cabinet full of former lobbyists, uh, uh, executives who have made their fortunes uh, off lobbying Washington, because that's how many of these executives, that's that's what's made them so successful at what they've done. So in that sense, I want people who feel the urgency of the need for change and have a vision that we can do it. I'd add one more. I'd want some risk takers. Mm-hmm. Not just people who want to kind of preside over, you know, it's really nice to dress up in the outfit and have everyone call you Mr. Secretary or Madam Secretary. Uh, But people who pitch me on what their vision is, what they'd like to accomplish, and that they'd be willing to get out there and take some risk to do it. Mitch McConnell famously said about you, nevertheless, she persisted. So people now, some people have tattoos that say nevertheless. Do you have any nevertheless, she persisted gear of your own? Yes, I do. What is it? Oh, I have multiple necklaces, bracelets. I have multiple artistic renderings. Okay. In all kinds of different forms, in paintings, because people have given them all to me as gifts. Yeah. So I got a lot of good stuff. And running for president is hard. So what do you do to unwind? FDR had cocktail parties. Ike played bridge. Obama watched ESPN after a day of meeting people in Iowa. What do you do to take oh, your mind off I, the campaign? I 
play with Bailey. Uh, Your dog. The dog. Bruce and I walk him around Fresh Pond. What kind of dog? He's a golden retriever. A big boy. He's uh, 10 months old now and uh, never met anybody he didn't love. He, he kind of grounds me in the world that... Uh, he reminds you of the priorities and the most important priorities. Scratch me right there, right there, right behind me. Right there. <laughs> get me. Oh, wait. Oh, get me on that part. When you start scratching him on his ear, he'll, he starts leaning until he falls over. <laughs> uh, who could ask for something better? Well, thank you for having us in your home and thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Now we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, Michelle and Ross will join me to debrief. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Michelle and Ross are back now, and we are going to talk about my conversation with Senator Warren. Hello, Michelle and Ross. Hey, David. Hey, David. So, Ross, did we get you to sign up for the new agenda of Warren populism? (laughs) I mean, I think she's always interesting in the sense that she has a well-thought-out theory of what is wrong with American capitalism, and she has an account of how to fix it that is clearly distinct, I think, from what a lot of the other Democrats in the field are doing, at least so far, right? I mean, we have this sort of general sense that there's a kind of race to the left in the Democratic field where everybody is trying to come out with the most ambitious, sweeping proposal, et cetera. Um, But there's a difference between what Warren is emphasizing and what the others are emphasizing often. Right. And the others tend to be saying, here's how we're going to spend a lot of money on program X or Y or Z. And she's doing that to some extent with the childcare stuff. But you can tell that what she's most interested in is this sort of how do we encourage slash force the American business class, the big corporations, the American capitalists to behave in some kind of more communitarian slash patriotic way. And I have a lot of doubts about the specific plan for how she's going to do that. But it is, I think, really distinct from just like, you know, we're going to do Medicare for all and free college and, you know, free childcare and so on. What I would add to that is that a lot of her stuff, let's set aside her personally for a minute. A lot of her agenda is actually popular. I mean, look at the polling on the wealth tax. It is much more popular than some of the the signaling that candidates are trying to do to the left on things like taking away people's private health insurance. And that's why I think it might be influential. 
So this is when I start wondering, like, how much policy actually matters at all. So, you know, again, I when I talk about Elizabeth Warren, I'm going to have to repeat this full disclosure, which is that my husband has been consulting for her campaign. He designed her logo. Um, but I see, you know, to me, in terms of policy, and it's not just that I think her policies are close to ideal. I speak to sort of powerful Democrats all the time who say, well, obviously on policy, Elizabeth Warren is the best, but and I think that we can sort of see that reflected in the polling, right, that her ideas are extremely popular. She has by far the most comprehensive policy vision, you know, with a sort of very clear understanding of what went wrong and sort of what sort of mechanisms you could summon to fix it, you know, and yet you'll hear from people that she sort of reminds them of Hillary, which they mean in a purely stylistic sense. And it leads me to wonder what is the salience of policy in a Democratic primary or in our politics at all? I think voters don't care greatly about the rigorous details of a policy plan. And in that sense, it doesn't help Warren that much that she's being more rigorous than the other candidates. I think policy, though, is really useful for sort of signaling a general worldview and a general commitment. And and there, I think the challenge for her is that she's signaling the same general kind of thing as Bernie Sanders especially, but also some of the other candidates who are running to the left. And she's trying to figure out a way to sort of distinguish her signaling from the others, right? Right. So the way she's trying to distinguish herself is by saying, I have a plan and I know how to do these things. And, you know, what sort of fills me with despair about our politics is that I don't know how much that matters. Well, but maybe what matters is she's signaling that she's the candidate who wants to change the balance of power in the American economy, while other Democrats may be signaling more that they're the candidate of new programs and redistribution. And and obviously she has redistributionary plans, but her distinctive pitch is we need to deal with monopolies, we need to tax you know deep deposits of wealth, we need to do a lot of regulatory stuff to change how corporations operate. And so I, I think in a sense that the primary is a test of do Democratic voters want more dis- redistribution primarily? Do they want free college and Medicare for all primarily and they don't really care how you pay for it? Or do they buy into Warren's more, you know, we're going to restructure things so corporations behave differently approach? I, I think that's that's the distinction she's trying to draw. But Ross, you're framing it as a choice. Do Democratic voters want A or do they want B? And Michelle, I think your point is, a lot of voters don't even make this decision at all, right? They make the decision instead based on uh, how well someone is uh, at giving speeches, their age, their general profile, um, what their past jobs have been. Well, you know, to me, it's kind of like the what's the matter with Kansas problem in action. There's been this debate on the left forever, which is do socially conservative kind of lower middle class white voters and working class white voters vote against, you know, not just what condescending liberals like me see to be their economic interests, but what they say is their economic interests, you know, what their own kind of economic policy preferences are, at least in, you know, polls and focus groups, but consistently willing to set those aside because of cultural issues. If you really do believe that something has gone fundamentally wrong in the American economy. You know, here's somebody who is 
identifying that problem, who's been looking at the way people's lives go off the rails because of healthcare costs or credit card debt, you know, has just kind of like a much more holistic understanding of what has gone wrong since, you know, I don't know, around 1980. And instead, she's trying kind of so valiantly to say, like, let's make this a debate about policy. And I'm just not sure if she is maybe kind of overestimating all of this. Well, I mean, I think there's a sense in which if you ask typical Americans, to use an overused phrase, what's gone wrong with the economy, they would say that wages haven't risen fast enough and the cost of certain goods has gone up, right? And so there's a simplicity in responding to those concerns by saying, okay, we're going to make college education free and we're going to guarantee health care and maybe we're going to cut middle class taxes as some of, you know, Kamala Harris, right, has proposed a middle class tax cut. And Warren, on the other hand, right now, like what is she talking about in the last week or two? She's talking about doing a big antitrust crackdown on internet companies. And I, I agree with you that there's sort of a maybe more sophisticated left-wing vision in which antitrust looms large. But I think you can understand why voters might be more responsive to the message that says, OK, you know, your wages seem stagnant. Here's some more money than the message that says, oh, this company that is, by the way, really popular <laughs> that you use to buy cheap goods and bring them to your doorstep all the time, this company is actually the problem and we're going to go after them. Right. But her argument is her argument is your wages seem stagnant because companies have become too responsive to their shareholders and they're paying too much to their chief executives and they don't have this sense of social responsibility. I mean, I think that most people probably intuitively feel that. I guess the other thing I would add is it's really early. I mean, Obama was getting crushed by Clinton at this point. So I don't think we should draw too many firm conclusions based on on what the polls are currently saying. But if we're still going to ask why she's not doing better, I don't think it's a referendum on her policy agenda, which polling suggests is very popular. I think it's much more about who she is personally. I think there are voters out there who aren't comfortable with the fact that she identified herself as a Native American in the past. And I think it doesn't help her that she's an intellectual and spent years as a Harvard professor. It's so crazy. She has the most sort of genuine, like Horatio Alger story of any candidate in this race and right and has roots in the Midwestern working class in a way that I can't think of any other politician of her stature who has sort of a similar backstory. Yep. All that's true. And then I guess the, the final thing is, I do think we need to, again, it's early, but I do think we need to think about sexism here. I mean, who's leading the polls? Um, men, mm -hmm. right? Bernie, Biden, Harris is back there. But but uh, so far, uh, it does look like potentially that w even in the Democratic primary, maybe Ross would say especially in the Democratic primary, sexism remains a significant issue. Well, and one of the things that's so interesting is that you see how many people will say that like Biden is their first choice and Bernie is their second. And, you know, part of that is just maybe that those are the two names that they know. I think you can't underestimate the impact of name recognition this far out. But part of it is like, hmm, what do Bernie and Biden have in common? You know, they, like no. nothing policy wise, but they've got something important in common. I will I will stand up for the non-sexism, at least for right now, of the Democratic primary voter. Bernie Sanders ran for president 
and did extremely well relative to expectations. He was the runner-up in the last primary and in the sort of historical way the Republican Party worked, um, which it doesn't obviously work anymore, he would have been considered the natural front-runner going in. Joe Biden was vice president for eight years under a president who remains extremely popular with the Democratic base. And Elizabeth Warren has existed as a prominent intellectual, which means that she is sort of on the radar screen of people like us. And then as a senator from the bluest state in the union, arguably, whose chief accomplishment, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is it, – it's a small thing. And it's, it's not sort of something that the median primary voter is going to have front and center the way Bernie's identity and Biden's identity would be front and center. I mean, I think in many ways, Warren looks like a sort of classic Paul Songus type, you know, northeastern liberal academic figure who have, whether they're men or women, have always had a challenging road. And I don't think we should be surprised that she isn't running away with the nomination at this point. I think the, the real story here is that people in our line of work have, for different reasons, underestimated both Bernie and Biden all along. And we'll get to Biden uh, in a future episode soon. Let's end on the policy stuff. If, if the, whoever the Democratic nominee is, we're going to adopt one part of the, of the Warren agenda, the new part of the Warren agenda, which one would you each rank number one? Universal child care. Universal child care, yeah. What about yeah, you, Ross? absolutely. I mean, we just did the episode where I explained why I was against or skeptical of universal child care. <laughs> and I think it's vulnerable to precisely the issues that you raised in the interview, David. And so I'm, I'm skeptical of that one. Um, I, think, I think Warren is making a mistake by trying to go after Silicon Valley in full. I think the smart version of what Warren's doing would separate Google and especially Facebook from Amazon and Apple and sort of make a bigger issue of sort of Facebook and Google's stronger monopolies and their control over the flow of information, which is something that Apple and Amazon don't exercise, and say, look, we're not going after all of Silicon Valley. We're going after these specific bad actors who have a different kind of monopoly than what Amazon's trying to build. So there, there's a longer argument there, but basically that's the piece. I think Warren is right to go after Silicon Valley, but I think she and all other anti-Silicon Valley crusaders need to do a better job of sort of basically dividing and conquering rather than trying to take on the full tech panoply as it stands. Oh, Ross, whenever you go populist, I like to end a segment. So we'll end it here and we will be right back with our weekly recommendation. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation when we give you a suggestion of something to take your mind off of politics. Ross, this week is your turn. What do you have for us? All right. So this is a little embarrassing, but I'm going to do it anyway. So many, many episodes ago, David, you recommended seltzer. I did indeed. And I enthusiastically seconded it. I'm a seltzer drinker from like the age of seven. But one of the seltzers I drink is the most like bobo, yuppie form of seltzer imaginable. It's called Spindrift. And I think they now sell it in Starbucks. So it's sort of like gone. It's gone big. It's gone national. But it's still like this ridiculous boutique kind of seltzer. And I'm recommending it 
mostly because one of the stores where we shop at stopped stocking it, and I started buying <laughs> some of the other fruit-flavored seltzers. So Spindrift is like, you know, it's selling a hint of lemon, a twist of orange, a touch of raspberry, of real fruit flavor. And I would drink it, and I would think, well, this is good. But, you know, I mean, real, you know, everybody's selling real fruit flavor. I hadn't drunk fruit-flavored seltzers from other brands for a while. And I've been doing it for the last couple of weeks, and they're terrible. They all taste horribly artificial. And whatever magic Spindrift works really does taste like real fruit compared to, like, all, not just, like, the Stop and Shop alternatives, but, like, the Perry. I bought the Perrier fruit-flavored seltzer, and it's awful. Spindrift is amazing. It's a great achievement. So within the world of seltzer obsessives, I'm recommending Spindrift, including to whoever decided to stop stocking it (laughs) at the Elm City Market in New Haven. (sighs) So I have to admit, I'm against flavored seltzer personally. Yes. But I'm in favor of it as a societal phenomenon because most people prefer flavored seltzer to unflavored. And that means that the rise of flavored seltzer has caused seltzer to be available in many more stores so I can more often find my beloved seltzer. But I will always choose an unflavored over a flavored. My personal favorite is Boylan because of how bubbly it is. So to me, it's not about the flavor. It is about the carbonation, and I like a lot of it. Michelle, have you tried Spindrift? No, I'm like not a seltzer aficionado. I mean, I drink it because my kids drink a ton of it, and they call it bubble water, and sometimes... When I'm, like, really addled, I will order bubble water in a restaurant and then feel ridiculous. David, I just want you get a Spindrift and get the same flavor from LaCroix or wherever and just drink them together. I'm not trying to convert you to Spindrift. I just want to know that I'm not crazy because I might be crazy. You want me to experience the difference? I, I want you to tell me if okay. I'm right about the difference. And we can we can reconvene in a future episode and discuss. I will do it as a blind taste test, and I will let you know which I prefer. Fantastic. That's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. We would love to hear your feedback. If you have thoughts, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show is produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media and edited by Lacey Roberts. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad-Philbrick, and Francis Ying. Special thanks to Kaiser Health News for use of their studio in Washington. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you right back here next week. Do you have a flavor that you like in particular, Ross? Um... Yeah. <laughs> Is that private? <clears throat> no, it's just all so embarrassing. Um, <laughs> my my favorite flavor is grapefruit. NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.